Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. 2023 presented many challenges for financial institutions, record-breaking inflation, rapidly rising interest rates, reduced loan demand, and declining deposits have created a level of uncertainty that we have not experienced for decades. These changes have disrupted the status quo assumptions while presenting amazing opportunities for financial institutions willing to reinvent their legacy business models. I'm excited to have Greg Tewksbury, President and CEO of the New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp, and Lee Weatherington, Senior Director of Corporate Strategy at Jack Henry on the Banking Transform podcast. They discussed the results of the 2023 Strategic Priorities Benchmark Study just released by Jack Henry and put in perspective as to how it's impacting financial institutions of all sizes. The financial marketplace has never been in such a state of flux for traditional banks and credit unions, fintech firms, and even consumers as everyone tries to navigate a period of change that is really unprecedented. That said, while there are definite risks associated with this change, this is also a time of amazing opportunity where organizations, consumers, and connected organizations such as solution providers can become even better positioned for growth and to become more future ready. So welcome to the show, Greg and Lee. Before we start, can you both share a little bit about your backgrounds with for our listeners, as well as your organization's background a little bit? I'm going to start with you, Greg. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm the president and CEO of New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp. Um, we're a multi-bank holding company based in New Hampshire. We've got three individually chartered mutual banks um, underneath the holding company, as well as a, a trust company, a wealth management company. We're about $3.6 billion in assets. Our, um, we have assets under management of about a billion and a half um, of our, in our wealth management company. Um, been here a long time, seen many different uh, uh, gyrations of our of our industry. Look forward to this conversation today. Thanks for having me, Lee. Yeah, so I'm I'm Lee Weatherington. I'm senior director of corporate strategy at Jack Henry. I am part of a, a team of analysts who track everything going on in the the fintech, banking, financial services industries. Uh, we subscribe to all the major research houses. I'm the generalist on that team, uh, putting together and making connections between disparate domains of, of research and, and findings that we put together. And then sort of as a, a, a segue to what we're gonna be talking about today, my team also produces each year what we call our strategic priorities benchmark, which is a survey of uh, this year, it was about 120 CEOs, both banks and credit unions, about what matters most to them in 2023 and 2024. So what, Lee, what was the date of that actual research conducted? Because with everything changing so fast, to put that in perspective, it's good for a, a benchmark. Yeah, so we filled the survey uh, between January 17th and March 17th of this year. Um, and the big thing that happened, of course, in that window was the failure of Silicon Valley and then yeah. the two other uh, big regional banks thereafter. The responses in the survey are primarily pre-SVB failure. Yeah. But we had about 6 to 7% of our responses that came in that week after before we closed out the survey. So, Lee, a lot has changed in the past few years in our industry. Could you share some of the top findings of your report? Yeah. So, if we zoom way out, Jim, uh, we've been doing our study now for a while 2021, of course, was all about digital and everything that qualifies as quote unquote digital transformation, given the fast forward that the pandemic uh, put us in. Last year, the the number one priority was lending, right? You, we all had more deposits than we knew what to do with most financial yep. institutions. You know, if you asked them 18 months ago, had enough deposits to fund about three or four years worth of loan growth. Then you fast forward to this year and suddenly everybody's scrambling for deposits given this cascade of inflection points that happened in 2022, beginning with inflation that actually started creeping in at the end of 2021. And then the Fed's uh, rather delayed response in trying to tamp that down with the rates. That just generated a, a, a series of other uh, inflection points that have really shaped the market shifts that are driving 2023 and a lot of the responses we got you know, back in, in our survey findings. 
You know, it's interesting as we look at the industry as a whole, and I, I, I'm kind of, you and I are very similar in what we end up doing, which is looking at all the research in the marketplace and try to make it into something that's manageable from a mindset standpoint. But right. even from the standpoint of the timing of your research to today, the amplification of the need for deposits has gotten even greater. I've been to a couple of events recently, and it's the number one takeaway, somewhat caused by the whole situation in Silicon Valley Bank. But it's also interesting because for for those of us that are the, for, for those of you in the listening audience who have not been in banking forever, deposits used to always be a focus, but it hadn't been for the last 12 years. And it really it was interesting how the entire marketplace got disrupted with something that was new again. It's, it's kind of strange. So, Lee, one more question about the research for a moment here. What was the most surprising takeaway from the research? Yeah. This is just my opinion, but the, the most yeah. surprising result or results that we found were in a couple of places. One is there were material differences in the priorities of bank CEOs versus credit union CEOs. And this is borne out again by the inflection points and how those impacted those two different segments. For instance, you know, deposits were and are the top strategic priority for banks 2023 and 2024. Not the case for credit unions. For credit unions, data, leveraging data, is the number one strategic priority for 2023 and 2024. Now, the, what I ascribe that to is the fact that in 2022, in the credit union space, you did not have an absolute decline in the total pie of deposits, whereas you did have that decline for the first time in 80 years, by the way, on the bank side of the house. So rolling into 2023, way before Silicon Valley failed and the other failures that came after that, we already had uh, de deposits, deposit churn, deposit wars raging. And when Silicon Valley failed, it, it simply accelerated uh, those, those trends that were already uh, well in process rolling into 2023. You know, it's interesting, too, because some of that inflow outflow took place because of the government checks. You know, a lot of organizations got very flush in cash, flush in deposits. But what was interesting is organizations didn't do the analysis, say, OK, we got this big influx of deposits. Did we retain them? And we've seen, you know, the silent attrition, what I'll call, where people are actually transferring money between players. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So, Greg. As with every financial institution, looking back at your last year's financial report or any organization's financial report, it probably in many cases, especially this year, was not a good barometer for what organizations have faced already in 2023, especially when you look at deposits, loans, interest rates, and Silicon Valley Bank. Have your strategic priorities shifted in the last nine or 10 months? Yeah, they sure have. <laughs> um, you know, we were more probably in line with the credit unions focused on data, um, focused on our payment strategy, and we still are. Those are important strategies. Um, what was not top of list in our strategies were deposit gathering, <laughs> retention, acquisition. Yeah. Um, we have good tools in place for that. Um, we, we got a well-diversified deposit base, but um, you know the retention and acquiring of those um, was not a, a strategic priority. It was because they were coming in. Uh, they were coming right. in through right. through COVID um, with, with those government payments you mentioned, Jim. Um, and we've been successful just over long periods of time in funding our balance sheets with core deposits. So um, it wasn't a strategy until we got into the fourth quarter of, of 2022, where yeah. um, interest rates started becoming um, much higher, money became worth something, and the industry as a, as a whole became fighting, you know, uh, uh, you know, tirelessly to retain, you know, those deposits on their balance sheet. So our strategy did um, pivot to, you know, really focused on um, not only do we have the right tools, product, um, and services in place, but do we have the really have the internal business development folks to go back out and sell to those small and medium business clients. You know, it's interesting, Greg, you know, we take loyalty for granted when it doesn't hit us in the face. We we don't look at attrition very much. We don't even look at flow of funds that that finitely because we end up in a situation that, as you said, with basically 0% interest rates, there was no reason for people to switch things around. When things got active, 
Did it challenge your organization? Does it challenge probably every organization to rethink about how loyal your customers are as opposed to how stable your accounts are? You know, one thing we've seen in our research is that with the diversification of relationships, you know, I'm sitting here with a personal account, a business account, but I also have Acorns. I also have Robinhood. I also have SoFi. And what happens is the diversity of how I manage those accounts changes over time. And has that put a new focus on not taking, not that you ever took them for granted, but not taking the whole concept of loyalty and retention for granted? Yeah, my, my perspective is that uh, I'm not sure we ever took them for granted, meaning that we worked hard bad, every bad, day to earn, yeah. you know, the the right to 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 you know hold these deposits of our customers. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, your point is that they just came in. We worked hard. We got the right products, hopefully the right pricing, um, and we were able to acquire them um, as needed. And um, yeah, over the past six to nine months, that's changed. You know, just in terms of the competitive landscape of where rates have gone and 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 the ease of people, um, as you mentioned, the attrition, uh, we talk about it going out the back door. <laughs> those, yeah. those customers that call us and talk about rate, well, we, we can work with those and, and, and sometimes negotiate, you know, their loyalty, you know, with, with higher rates. But the, it's not the ones, you know, that it's the ones that don't call you and say, oh, yeah, you know, click here and, and, and they're gone. And yeah, that's been, you know, painful for the industry to see, you know, that attrition of deposits go out the door. And, um, so it's changed our focus, you know. Um, yeah. And, and it makes it more difficult that, well, you know, I do sometimes big events and I, I ask people in an audience, let's say 200, 300 people, how many of you have closed your primary financial relationship in the last five years? And almost nobody raises their hand. I then ask, how many of you have opened some form of financial relationship in the last two years? Everybody raised their hand. So what happens is the, the legacy ways of measuring attrition was, do we lose the account? Now we have to look things a little bit deeper and say, are we having people diversify the relationship where in some way, shape, or form, it's always at risk if we're not, as you mentioned earlier, delivering on that promise. And when the ability to diversify as you mentioned, is a click of a button, it really changes the game. And again, what you have to focus on to a degree, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. I mean, um, customers are, are really in the in the catbird seat um, demanding um, features, functionality. Um, the, we feel internally that we have to be, you know, so relevant with products and services and using, you know, using partners like Jack Henry and others to um, help you know, look around the corner to say, you know, these, this is where you need to be delivering those services and then complement it with, you know, high touch service in the community banking space. Um, but, but it's not as easy as it used to be. Um, the competition oh, yeah. is fierce. Um, the, the swiftness of how payments move in, in our, in our, um, in our system is, is fast. Um, the younger generation, I mean, I know all my kids have multiple accounts and they do have the Acorn accounts. They do have Robinhood and they have, you know, a little slice in some digital currency. And <laughs> virtually all their transactions are done through Venmo or, or Zelle or, or Zelle. one of these other. Yeah. And, and the reality is the, the bank of origin is not necessarily their primary financial relationship from the standpoint of activity and engagement, which is crazy. Yeah, sure. You know, Lee, you, you, you spend a lot of time with your ear to the, to the street trying to figure out what's going on. What do you hear is the top concerns facing banks and credit unions today? What's, beside, and I know that the, the need to generate deposits, but what are they most concerned about? Yeah, they're, they're concerned. We actually asked this specific question. And, you know, banks are concern, concerned. Their top concern, in fact, our aggregate top concern was still talent, retention, and acquisition. Um, that was number one. For banks, it's NIM compression, it's regulatory changes, it's specifically a fear of what the CFPB is gonna do under the banner of, of uh, you know, waging war against what they call quote unquote junk fees, uh, what that's gonna mean. And then in terms of credit unions, uh, in contrast, they're really worried about when the other shoe's gonna fall. They're worried about the economic slowdown how severe or not it's going to be, the rising rate of delinquencies, the vulnerability of their auto lending portfolios, both direct and indirect, 
um, to, to that slowdown. So there's a lot of a lot of things um, that they're worried about. I want to I want to tag on to a few things that you guys were were just talking about. We, you know, one of the biggest inflection points we experienced in 2022, as you just alluded to, was going from a 13-year zero-rate free money environment to a rate in which money is not free anymore. And there were so many inflection points, additional sort of knock-on effects that came as as a result of that. But one of, uh, including the impact in fintech, and, and you cover that uh, comprehensively, Jim. But one of the other things that it's really struck me, and I, I hear this in boardrooms on both the bank side and the credit union side, is that in a zero rate environment, it was really sometimes very tough to distinguish uh, the difference and or the value uh, between a chartered financial services provider and a non-chartered financial service services provider that was just um, you know, levering some form or flavor of banking as a service. But in a high rate environment, suddenly we've got a very clear distinction uh, in the the strengths and the competitive advantages that chartered uh, providers have at hand, right? Uh, Their competency in risk management, their competency in compliance, uh, their competency in managing the balance sheet, trust. All of those things uh, are much more conspicuous differentiators now for banks and other chartered financial institutions uh, vis-a-vis fintechs and, and just consumer direct unchartered neobanks versus what they they were just you know 18 months ago. So I, it's something it's something to think about. Or three months ago. Or th- or or three months ago. Yeah. I mean I mean the reality is most consumers were not really well educated as to the risk beyond the simple risks. You know, Silicon Valley Bank made it very clear because of all the heavy duty education that was done by news media around why this made a difference and also why the government saved everybody in that organization. They become more aware. And I, I think, you know, that differentiation becomes very major where it always was. I think now is consumer awareness that really makes a difference. Right. I think you're absolutely right about that. And to tag on to one more piece, to going back to the deposit priority for this year and next, especially with banks, there's this issue, and this is not just for banks, this is also for credit unions, but is how do we close the deposit gaps uh, generationally with, with the younger folks, with Gen Y and Gen Z in particular? We now have very clear and clean answers, uh, data-driven, results-driven answers to that particular problem and how to close that gap, both in terms of acquisition of the relationship and the deposits those relationships represent. With Gen Y and Gen Z, you gotta have, and I'm preaching to the choir, Jim, I know you've gotta have mobile only account opening that doesn't force or require funding as a part of the opening process. And you've gotta be able to offer early paycheck access a la a chime, which is a very yep. uh, very easy ACH trick um, that I'm, it's amazing to me that that only sort of uh, that trick came out in the last few years. But if you have those things and you can market um, effectively at all, you can close those Gen Y and Gen Z relationship gaps and deposit gaps accordingly. Well, you know, it's interestingly too, because it gets to definition. You know, we we ask financial institutions, how many of you have digital account opening? And it's around 78, 83%. It's very high. When we say how many of you are able to open an account in less than five minutes, it goes down to less than 20%. I'm sorry, it's not digital account opening just because you allow somebody to do something digitally. And in many cases, make the customer still come into the branch. You know, we get into a definition game. and, And what's interesting is the awareness, again, the way to be digital is a whole lot different. And it really gets into the back office. So, Greg, you know, Get talking about the back office, you know, the importance of growing deposits and loans, increasing, improving the operational efficiency and enhancing the customer experience basically have been the top three priorities in some order for banks and credit unions. How are you addressing the issue of updating your back office, making that more digital? Because again, you know, our research and Lee's research has shown that you really aren't digital in the customer facing view unless you fix the things that customer doesn't see. How are you working towards that? 
So we've been trying to get to a digital first environment inside our company for, for a great deal of time. COVID accelerated that, <laughs> right? Um, DocuSign became now part of everything that we do. Here's an interesting thing that just, just, just occurred over the past um, couple of months. We had a courier, paid courier service that went around New Hampshire to our 27 branches and dropped off paper. And we started tracking that a year or so ago in terms of there were so many stops, they actually had nothing to pick up. And so um, just two months ago, um, we were finally able to cancel that courier service, 200,000 bucks a year, um, not a huge dollar amount, but it's, it's real money. Um, and, and those types of things of, of thinking internally about how we can digitize things and, and make things more efficient. Um, we're using robotic process automation. Um, so we've got programmers that are focused on, on spending a lot of time thinking about automating some of our processes. Think about your accountant that was doing that reconciliation. Right? They're looking over here for a particular number. They're looking at this ledger for a particular number. Well, through robotic process automation, if those agree, we don't need people looking at two different spots in the same spot every day, looking at whether those reconcile. Exception management becomes then part of um, how, how we're leveraging our talent inside. So we're, we're spending a great deal of time thinking about efficiencies and digitization inside our organization. Um, we're using with you know, Lee's company to help you know, with workflow um, automation. Um, there's really good software solutions out there to help improve um, how, you, um, how you get information from one source to another um, without human intervention. And, and, uh, and staff at one point in time were probably concerned about this approach. Um, what they've seen is they're leveraging their talents by putting in them in different areas and not imaging the, these documents from, you know, from a loan file manually when all of that information we've received electronically in some manner. If we can collect that electronically, we should be able to, you know, save it electronically without somebody standing over a scanner for hours on end. So internally, we're, you know, we're, we're really focused on trying to provide some efficiency. So the back room is a critically important aspect for, you know, how we think about things digitally and transfer, transferring that to the front end, you know, trying to help them in very different ways. You know, it's interesting, Greg, because your organizational structure, I don't know how many of my listeners know much about the mutual environment, but in many mutual organizations, they're a combination of a number of organizations working on behalf as, as one. And so you're always being challenged to say, how can we bring more to the overall partnership, the mutual version of what you're doing? But it's interesting, too, because you hit something that we talk about often on the podcast, which is how do you bring your employees along without them feeling that their jobs are at risk when you go digital? In the same sense, organizations such as yours at $3.5 billion really have to leverage, and you referenced uh, Jack Henry and Lee's company um, in your discussion, how important now are third-party collaborations with organizations that can bring you solutions that are almost, I'm going to call them turnkey. Now, mind you, we always make things more difficult than they have to be, but where you can really get these solutions. If you have to find a digital new account open, if you have to find a good way to use robotic uh, automation, how important are third-party collaborations for making it so you can become future ready? They're critically important. I mean, we rely on on our partners to to bring those solutions to us and help us. I mean, we have internal talent, you know, th th uh, that that understand how we want to bank um, our customers, wh how, what we want to offer them. But but the collaboration with third parties to make that happen, for them to understand how their software works, for them to provide an API for for different software solutions to be able to talk to each other. Um, we talk about a frictionless right experience for a customer it's far from frictionless if we don't have third parties working with us and with with each other um and, and trying to create those those solutions when we think about third parties um so when i think about jack henry and we want to use perhaps a different digital um online banking solution solution the first thing that we look for is how many other banking clients do you have that are using the same solution? Have you been there and done that? Have you, have you ironed out some of those wrinkles? And that's an important part. Occasionally we'll be a pioneer, but most of the time we're looking for, you know, solutions that have been, been you know, tried and tested and, 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 you know, worked out. But collaboration with third parties is 
probably the most important part of what we think about um, in, in our company. I'll work with yeah. the presidents of the of the affiliate banks. Um, they rely on shared services at New Hampshire Mutual to kind of figure this out. But um, there's this iterative process where they're the boots on the ground. So tell me what the customers are looking for. Um, I'll, we'll look for the solution. We'll present it to them. Um, but when we decide that here's a solution collectively, it's this is the solution we're, we're using for all of our banks. Um, that's the only way that we're able to gain the efficiencies that this model requires. You know, it's interestingly, you know, Greg mentioned the, the collaboration with third-party solution providers. He also, also referenced what Jack Henry does, but Jack Henry doesn't work alone in many cases. I mean, I think one major change that I've seen in the last three years is really the integration of all different types of third-party collaborations where everybody says, we're, we're not going to try to think that it's a, it's a pie that we got to get a bigger piece of, but this is only going to work for our clients, the banks and credit unions out there, if we really work together with other solution providers who may provide a, a better specific solution than we can offer. How does your organization, Lee, evaluate who's the best to work with out in the marketplace, but more importantly, how you become ready to partner quickly with these organizations if you don't get the specific business? Yeah, so that's a great question. First, just uh, a number. We're closing in on 900 uh, third-party integrations uh, in the Jack Henry ecosystem, 900. And so we have from the get-go uh, had an open philosophy. The beautiful thing about the evolution of the tech stack, the modern uh, cloud native tech stack that we're building on and building out now is that it allows us to be open in a way that is much more meaningful, much more useful and much more valuable for the average bank or the average credit union. Um, our end game is to be the best open banking platform in the industry. And uh, we understand platform economics and we understand what that means is that we've got to be uh, the best uh, and or easiest um, uh, platform for a given fintech, high grade fintech um, to plug into, to embed with, and therefore to uh, be accessible to uh, the, the thousands of financial institutions that um, uh, that we enable. In terms of our process for um, just really honing in on the highest grade fintechs. By the way, let me let me give some context here because this this question you just posed, Jim, has never been more important. Uh, than it is this year in 2023. Oh, oh, by the way, it doesn't matter how big or small the financial institution is. Nobody's right. doing it alone anymore. Yeah. That's right. Um, you're right. We are. This is ecosystem strategy now. I, I beat this drum all the time, but uh, there's a difference between the industry disruption we used to talk about, which presumed a very clear boundary around the financial services industry or chartered providers, Right. But with banking as a service, payments as a service, lending as a service, deposits as a service, um, that boundary has effectively blurred or just gone away. So, so you are now you now have to think with a much broader lens. And the the trick of winning the new game is really orchestrating new value across this wider ecosystem of fintechs, big techs for that matter, and other forms of of third party relationships and geographies. When you and look at geographies, the, yeah. the banking as a service, you look at embedded banking. The whole situation is: if I need deposits, I can now build an organization that pulls deposits beyond my typical geography. So yeah. crazy, yeah. crazy changes. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your, to finish answering your question, my team, uh, the corporate strategy team at Jack Henry, this is what we do 24 seven every day is we are vetting that FinTech universe of thousands of FinTechs and we're breaking them down by category. And then in each category, we're doing a lot of due diligence, a lot of evaluation. We use very heavy duty tools like the, the CB Insights database and Mosaic scoring uh, for the FinTech ecosystem. Uh, to Greg's point, we also lean very heavily on things like uh, Bank Director's FinEx tech list. Uh, that list is about 700 or 800 FinTechs all of whom have been deeply vetted and have to attest 
real partnerships, successful ones with either banks, credit unions, or both to even be on that list. So that narrows the, 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 the field very quickly from thousands to a few hundred. And then we're, we're going that last mile uh, to, to really define and identify the highest grade fintechs that are mapped to the most important strategic priorities in the moment. This is exactly why we do our strategic priorities benchmark every year. And then that gets us to a very short list of the highest grade fintechs that then we want to uh, uh, invite, expedite, lure into embedding uh, into our digital platforms to make them available at scale um, to the hundreds and thousands of financial institutions that are, that are using our tech stack. You know, it's interesting. We, we, we at some point have to do another podcast simply on the vetting of partners because we're not just talking to third party parties, but you look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Everything that we thought we knew about the strength of organization and it didn't make it, these organizations less strong, but associations within them change the dynamics when, when a bank all of a sudden says, eh, we're not going to make it. That, that, you know, everybody scurried very quickly to say, can we make payroll? Are we, are we still as strong as we were a day and a half ago? And right. it was only a, a tweet away. So Lee, before we take a quick break, in doing research of organizations globally, I find that the Digital Bank Report, it's become abundantly clear that organizations know what they need to do, know pretty much how to achieve what they need to do, and even in many cases, who they could partner with to get there. That said, way more organizations than we ever want to consider are falling short of their goals. What do you see as the biggest obstacle to achieving the success that all these organizations pretty much have the roadmap of how to achieve it? Yeah, I think it's leadership blind spots and overwhelm, quite frankly. We just, we, we just uh, pro you know, proved out the point when you're starting with a, an ecosystem of thousands of fintechs, you know, how do you expect an average uh, bank CEO or an average credit union leader to be able to vet that ecosystem reliably or well enough uh, to, to put you know, then the resources forward to embed that particular fintech or third party into a digital banking experience and be assured that that particular third party is not gonna go away in six months, 12 months, 18 months. So um, there's also a generational component to that. Uh, there's a technical proficiency uh, proficiency question uh, about uh, you know your leadership and your board. Do you have technology expertise, basic proficiency and expertise represented on your board, on your leadership team, so that you can understand how the tech stack is shifting, what opportunities that's creating? And you mentioned before, this gets back to strategic agility. How, how can we get to a modern tech stack that gives us the option to pull the trigger on meaningful fintechs of choice or third-party partnerships uh, that can make a difference in a meaningful time frame? Um, that really, to me, is the biggest challenge facing leadership teams of financial institutions of all stripes. Well, and and we won't get into it right now, but the reality is you can't buy yourself into being future ready. The reality is you can buy the best technology, but if the leadership doesn't understand how to implement against that, if they haven't worked with their employees to get ready to be future ready, they're not going to make it. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. I'm joined today by Greg Tewsbury, President and CEO of New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp, and Lee Weatherington, Senior Director of Corporate Strategy at Jack Henry. We've been discussing the strategic priorities of the banking industry today and how organizations can better achieve success. So, Greg, before the break, I asked Lee a little bit about what stands in the way of success when you have so many priorities, but when you all pretty much know what you need to do to become future ready. At New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp, what is the greatest impediment to success? Because I know you of all people know what needs to be done, but nothing ever goes completely according to plan. 
for your organization, is it is it limited budget? Is it too many competing priorities? Is it lack of time? Is it regulatory constraints? Is it human or technological resources? What is it at your organization? Yeah, I would say it's more more the human resources, Jim. You know, we we all have budget constraints, right? We don't have a budget yeah. like Citigroup no, or or Citicorp or or, or Chase, yep. but um, so so budgets do impact it. But as a mutual bank, and I don't use that as a veil, um, we, our capital is unforgiving and we have to put it to a good work, um, but we've just got, you know, it's more patient than, than, than maybe perhaps the stock banks. So we look at budgets, but we'll never allow that to be the reason why we don't do something that we think is strategically important. Um, oftentimes it just comes down to internal resources, have the bandwidth um, to be able to take on another project. Um, the last several years are an example. We we did an awful lot, but some of it was just dealing with the growth. You know, double-digit yeah. growth for three years in a row. Um, we were putting in structures to deal with just the number of accounts. When you think about the servicing um, and, uh, and and everything that comes with you know going from a two and a half billion to a three and a half billion dollar institution, um, uh, making sure that the risk profile is there. But it comes down to: Do we have the resources? Do we have the human resources to be able to understand? You know, reach out to the leads and say, "Gosh, we're looking at these three different options." Um, yeah. You know, but but we only need one of them. Which is the right one for us? Um, and taking the time and bringing our company through a process to evaluate um, the right solution. Our company gets a little more complicated because I got to bring, you know, three bank presidents yep. through that yep. process. But that's, uh, it, it's more just having the, the resources available that can be a limiting factor. You know, it's interesting because that gets back to the need for collaborations. Um, doesn't make it easier, but when you have a limited amount of time, and you said at the very beginning of this podcast, Greg, the need for speed and scalability. I need I need to get to market quickly as possible with what I need to do. I need my priorities to be in line. And I really, I mean, speaking for you, rely on my partners to tell me what direction should I go, maybe what partners should I pick, and what's the easiest way to get to my future destination. Now, now, Greg, we talked about before with your organization that you really need a team of leaders that are moving the same direction. But actually, for an organization on your side, you need all employees to be moving the same direction. How do you work as a leader, not just with your other mutual affiliates, but with your employees directly to make sure that they feel comfortable in their roles that they're striving to move forward to meet your why and that you're doing the best you can to build innovation into their mindset. Yeah, so it starts with the hiring process, right? So we want people that are intellectually curious um, and technology is talked about um, all the time. Um, internally, um, from my pulpit, I talk about two things that are going to make us successful over the long run, talent and technology. TNT. Um, we brought these banks together. We squeezed some efficiencies out of it. Um, that doesn't go to shareholders. This isn't not meant to be just a mutual <laughs> um, um, uh, 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 show here, but we take all of those savings and we put it back into two things, talent and technology. So internally, you know, making sure that we're all thinking about how technology plays a role um, in, in us being sustainable and relevant over long periods of time is part of the culture. So I think Part of my role and part of my leadership team's role is to ensure that the individuals um, embrace technology um, as um, who we are as a company. Oftentimes, I start with conversations that we're a technology company delivering financial services. Um, it, it's far different than that, but it creates a mindset that if you don't embrace technology, then probably there's not you know a long-term opportunity for 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 you here. So. Part of it's just setting the tone um, and, and using the right partners. I mean, you can't say that and, and not align yourselves with the right partners. Um, we do feel we use best of breed partners. Um, we don't skimp on, on, on who we choose to partner with. We think that in the long run, that's going to provide us a better, more efficient um, and least cost solution, even though it may be a little more expensive up front. Um, and we stick with them a long time because the institutional knowledge of our, of our employees, knowing that product, knowing their, you know, their counterparts on the other side, you know, provide value um, not only to the employee experience, but hopefully over long periods of time to the customer experience. 
You know, it's interesting, Greg, because your organization is what you do with partnerships. You mentioned about the long-term partnerships, but you also, and we've seen this with a lot of really good organizations, are defined by who they don't pick sometimes as much as by who they do pick. So what happens is, I've seen it in, in doing research for your organization, you will find a partner that may do something that's exactly the same as another partner you already are in a relationship with, but don't do it as well. You don't get strangled by existing partnerships in much the same way that you don't, you're, you're strong in loyalty, but you're not hampered by that loyalty. And that's a big differentiator we've seen recently that organizations that say, yeah, my partner is XYZ, but they don't provide the best solution for what I'm looking for today. I've got to realize some people in my organization may think I'm double investing, but the reality is I'm smartly investing. So that's it's a great credit to your organization, the way you lead as a leader. So, Lee, what is the biggest opportunity you see as you look forward? In two words, it's open banking and levering the open banking rails that we have in the United States to solve for what I, I see as the biggest challenge and also opportunity, uh, which is financial fragmentation. We've been talking about the fragmentation that Greg has to navigate in terms of partnerships, third parties, fintechs, uh, you know, the ecosystem disruption he and, and other banks are undergoing. If you take that, however, to the UX level, uh, the average American uh, has relationships with between 15 and 20 different financial service providers. The average smartphone in the United States has 14 different financial apps on it. And what's happening, and we saw that in the financial health numbers kind of take a plunge along with inflation and other drivers last year, is that uh, we've got all these apps and all these relationships, and we don't know exactly where we stand with our money. And when we don't know when we where we stand with our money, we can't possibly know or have any assurance about what to do next or how to do better. So the biggest the biggest opportunity is solving for fragmentation. And I think uh, banks like Greg's are in the perfect position to be able to do that by levering what is uh, most people don't realize it. The most mature open banking rails in the world are here in the United States in the way of the biggest financial data exchange providers we have: Finicity, Plaid, Acquia. Um, you know, Yodley, Intuit, et cetera. Um, so plumbing into those open banking rails and then bringing back over those more standardized and secured open banking APIs, uh, bringing back to the bank, back to the customer, uh, a comprehensive and comprehensible picture of their entire money situation across all those otherwise hopelessly fragmented apps and relationships puts the bank, puts Greg's banks, um, into the position of what we call first app status. You mentioned earlier, Jim, you know, what, what, who is the primary financial institution and how do we measure that? How do we quantify and or qualify that? It is not by account anymore. It's, by, it's, it's about what's going on inside those accounts and what those accounts are being used for by your customers yeah. or whether, oh, exactly. they're just a zomb whether they're just a zombie account. I mean, we, we, did, we did some research uh, with a FinTech Autobooks a couple of years ago and discovered, first of all, that in the average bank, there, between 13 and 35% of retail checking accounts are actually being used to run micro and small businesses. And because they can't get everything out of that retail account relationship at the bank that they need to run that small business, they go to third parties like PayPal, like Square, now Block. Wow. Um, and when they do that, um, they're using those third-party apps to collect the payments they need to collect as a smaller micro business. But only one out of every $8 collected in those third-party apps makes its way back to the bank account. Meanwhile, the bank thinks I'm still the primary financial institution with the primary checking account, but it's a zombie account. So being able to aggregate uh, a full picture of finances, being able to lever those open banking rails to do that reliably, to do that well, it not only sat, it not only solves for this financial fragmentation issue, which, which is a real pull on down on financial health in the United States, but it also puts the bank in the driver's seat in terms of the business intelligence about where customers are doing what, with whom, and why. And now you can make your own choices as a bank about what next best product or service do we need to embed from a fintech partner, or do we need to upgrade in terms of existing partnerships uh, to bring more of that uh, functionality and or money uh, 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 management back home natively to the bank? 
I'm I'm <laughs> laughing in the background mainly because my story of my life is my relationship for the small business that I have. And to your point, all my all my deposits to all the payments to me come via PayPal. All the expenditures go out via PayPal. And the reality is PayPal gives me instant access to bridge loans all the time. They know everything about my business. They know where I'm getting the revenue from, how often it comes in, how frequently I pay out, who I pay out. They know everything. And my legacy bank only sees a bunch of PayPal transactions. That is a zombie account in the best sense. In many ways, what's interesting is the uh, we will do a show. You've, you've got me on an, I'm writing these down as I go along <laughs> on, on, on business intelligence, the importance of business intelligence, because I think as legacy financial institutions, we tend to look at banking the way it was 20 years ago and forget about the instant transfer of money and how money flows and how much we don't see, but we think we know. And that's really, you know, we, we talked about during the beginning of COVID when they gave you relief on your mortgage loan, there's two types of people that took relief on their mortgage loan. Those that took the relief because they couldn't eat if they didn't. And those that took the relief so they could put money away in savings for a rainy day. Those are vastly different consumers that look exactly the same to the bank that has the mortgage loan. So Greg, as we finish up here with some quick questions, you are not, I don't believe, I haven't been in New Hampshire lately, but I don't think you're the only financial institution in New Hampshire, and I bet you're not the biggest. So how are you looking to differentiate New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp in the future against competition that comes from all sides and many times is not even located within your state? Sure. Well, our goal, as Lee talked about the number of apps that are on your mobile device that, that are financial institutions, um, we want to be that that one that people click. We think that's really the primary account. And you want to be the fingerprint on the on the screen. We want to be the fingerprint. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's what we and and if we do it well, so so to differentiate ourselves, we need to be that aggregator. We've had aggregation solutions that I think have fallen way short of what the customer experience is really looking for. If we can be that aggregator um, and, and and bring that full picture uh, relationship of their financial well-being, I, I think we can gain more and more of that wallet share um, if, if, if we're that fingerprint on the mobile device. So that's that's one way to differentiate. We also have to personalize it. We have data. We know that your PayPal account, you know, your account has got PayPal. How can yeah. how can we personalize your experience with our financial institution to be able to grab more of, of that? We have the information to be able to do, do a better job in selling you a different alternative than PayPal, because we have we have B two B payment options. We have P two P payment options. Why why would you go use a third party if if your fingerprint goes here and we give you the same the same option? So that's the differentiator. In the community banking space, if we can partner with best of breed uh, 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 companies like Jack Henry and and, and, and really have a good understanding of what that customer is looking for from a technology and then complement that with true on you know foot leather uh, you know um, relationships um, uh, being available to, to answer those questions that customers really have. If we can have really good technology and, and complement it with high levels of you know, personal touch, um, I think there's a place for community banking for a long period of time. Um, and, and as long as there's human beings that are looking for some type of relationship um, and you give them the right solutions with technology, um, we'll be relevant. Um, there will be fewer of us, but but we'll be relevant. <laughs> you know, Greg, that is so key in that, you know, what I have found, I talked about it before we got on the air today, is that some of the most innovative, most progressive, most exciting organizations that I'm seeing in the marketplace today are the smaller financial institutions that can move quickly, are agile, can build things at scale and at speed, and are using partnerships to get where fi bigger financial institutions are having a hard time doing just because they can't get out of their own way. It's exciting to see what you're doing at New Hampshire Mutual Bank Corp. It's exciting to see the partnerships and the way you view the partnerships to move forward. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, very quickly in conversations like this on the podcast, I can see just in faces who's successful and who's not based on the enthusiasm and who would get me to move off of not wanting to change what I do if I work for you. Um, it, it's exciting. We have not even scratched the surface, Lee. 
on the research you did, on the research you've done. And it's an excellent report that I recommend everybody get a hold of. How do people get a hold of the Jack Henry 2023 Strategic Priorities Report? Yeah, you just said it. I think the the easiest way is just to Google Jack Henry Strategic Priorities Benchmark. That'll take you to the the download page and and have at it. There's a lot in there and uh, we're very proud of it. We try to ask questions no one else is asking. And um, it's very helpful directionally for us and for our clients, but we, we've decided we really want to make it available to, to everybody um, so that everybody can benefit. And Lee, the only thing, the plug that I'll give, if you, if you take the time to read that report, you'll get the survey of the, of the CEOs, so the results of the survey, but the context that, that is provided to help interpret that, that those results is invaluable. Well, I'm going to take that compliment. I, I wrote that, so thank you. <laughs> it's 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 great though because what that says for anybody that's listening doesn't think below the surface here. It's that Greg participated in the survey, but he also reads it to continue educate. And this is the one of the most important components of leadership today: is are you sitting on your laurels, or are you continually educating yourself to make your organization better? Greg Lee. It has been a massive pleasure today. This could have gone on. My my team knows I'm hitting the limit on what we ever do on a podcast from the standpoint of time. And we didn't do everything we could. This could easily, we could easily do a second ver- a second uh, part two of this. We are going to get together again. Greg Lee, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your insight. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening to Back in Transform winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to give some love in the form of a review. It helps us to continue to get great guests like today. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslitz, audio engineer, Sean Rowe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Remember, change is a given. Your response to that change is what defines winners and losers. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.